Welcome. I'm Megan Smiley, and this is the Lawyer's Escape Pod. For those of you who've followed the rules, worked really hard to climb the ladder, but are looking around now and thinking, is this it? Is this my life? I hear you. You want more. You want freedom, fulfillment, purpose. But you don't really see how that's going to happen in the traditional work world. You're entrepreneurship curious, but it seems daunting and risky and sort of just unrealistic. In this podcast, I'm going to help you see just how possible it is to build a business and by extension, and really importantly, a life that you'll genuinely enjoy waking up to every morning. Hello, this week's guest is April Roberts. She's a former attorney turned financial advisor who now helps Gen X women achieve more abundance, love, spirituality, and alignment by connecting with their femininity. Uh, She's also the host of the podcast Vixen Voice, where she shares stories of Gen X women that have shed the traditional definition of success to pursue their life's passion. So there are a number of themes that we got into today with with April. Um, And I think the first one is really about being open and flexible. you know, your career path may take a number of different turns, both for professional and personal reasons. Um, you know, you grow and change and become more self-aware. Life happens. Um, so it's important to be flexible and resourceful and adaptable um, and continuing to check in with what's right for you in each season. She also talks a lot about sort of overcoming setbacks uh, and embracing growth. She really opens up about the difficulty of her divorce, which caused her to have to move countries twice, um, and the challenges that that came along with that, um, both personally and professionally, um, and how she learned to work through those and reframe things as not being a whole failure, but really looking at it as a growth opportunity. Um, and learning that sometimes things that are, you know, really painful in in the moment uh, can be a pathway to success down the road. And finally, we have some conversations about um, this idea of embracing your feminine and masculine energies, not necessarily not at all as sort of a gendered discussion in my view, but um, more of an archetypal energy. Um, This sort of balancing of the logical doing action oriented side of ourselves um, with the more intuitive, adaptable, flowing intelligence that that we all have. So um, it's it's a fun, interesting um, conversation. I really appreciated how open um, April was in sharing her experiences with us, and I am sure that you will enjoy the episode. April, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Megan. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So I like to ask all the lawyers on my show to start off is sort of what attracted you to law school and the law in the first place? 
Huh, that's interesting. So I remember at some part in my childhood thinking it'd be kind of cool being a Supreme Court Supreme Court justice. Mm-hmm. I don't think I really understood what that meant. Yeah. <laughs> I, I I remember having that moment and um I I went to undergrad and um I thought I wanted to be a journalist and a broadcaster, mm-hmm. but I was at Vanderbilt and we did not have a program for that. So mm-hmm. I went into a hybrid communications program program. And what it really was, was a feeding ground for law school. Like we took persuasion classes, public speaking, you know, Mm -hmm. um, rhetoric, critical thinking, et cetera. And I just absolutely loved my major. Like I was such a nerd. I actually wanted to be a rhetoric professor. Um, but it was a dying field when I was coming out of college. Like there weren't many, you know, it's hard enough to get a job as a professor at a good, uh, yeah, that's a whole other, (laughs) yeah, when it's a very small field. Um, and so I remember in college, you know, my parents were supporting me and my dad was the first person in our family to go to college, like my parents. Um, and so, you know, then them sending me to Vanderbilt, it was kind of a big deal. I came from like Southern Mississippi and people didn't really leave. Mississippi. Um, And, you know, my parents were super supportive of me, but um, obviously they were, they were stretching, even though, (laughs) even though we did well in Mississippi to send me to college there. Um, And I have oldest child syndrome. So I didn't realize how much my parents' opinion affected my opinion, Mm. um, especially when I was, you know, 18 to 22. Um, and so I remember thinking, gosh, it'd be cool to get a PhD in communications and, you know, go help like scientists and engineers communicate better because we have all these brilliant people in the world that aren't great communicators. And so like helping them to communicate their idea. Um, so you can imagine when I ran that by my parents, like they didn't find that very practical. Right, right. What job is that again? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I kind of was making up a job, basically. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, the other option was law school. And and I did excel at like persuasion, rhetoric. I love public speaking my whole life. So I decided, okay, well, I'll go try litigation. Um, And so that kind of, you know, when I came back to my parents with this idea of going to law school, uh, that, you know, that really suited their vision better. And I think a lot of us, you know, that had parents growing up in that generation and they were just like practical. How are you going to get out? How are you going to make money? Like, how are you going to be successful? And I think their definition of success is different than what our definition has evolved to in today's world. Um, And in fact, I always joke that a big part of growing up is seeing your parents at some point as human beings um, (laughs) instead of these magical creatures. Yeah. So um, that's kind of how I ended up in law school, to be honest. I I wanted to stay in school and uh, law school was acceptable to my parents who were continuing to pay my cost of living. I did get scholarships to law school, but, you know, um, they were supporting me because I did go straight to law school. Right. Right. You know, and I think. I think so much of that story is is a pretty common set mm-hmm. of circumstances um, that I hear. But it also, you know, it, you know, I think what I hear from you is also similar in that, like, it's not that law school was totally, you know, outside of our interest areas, right? There was some, there was some something appealing about it organically to us as well. Yes, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So. 
when you went to law school and you're coming out of law school, sort of, did you grow to love it? Did you sort of naturally find the area of law that you wanted to pursue? Yeah, honestly, when I went in, I was like, well, I'll go to law school. It's a great education. I don't know that I'm going to be a lawyer, but, you know, this will be valuable to my future. Mm. Um, and, and already I was lucky enough to understand the value of critical thinking. And I had gone to an undergraduate school that taught me how to think and write and communicate. And mm. so I thought of nothing else. Law school would enhance those skills, um, which would be super valuable for any career. Um, and Megan, to be honest, at the end of the first year, I, I don't know if I think all schools have this, but we had a defined curriculum first year, like we didn't get to choose what we took. And it yeah. was pretty heavy. And I just remember that summer going to my internship saying, gosh, if I stuffed all the stuff in my head, I need to use it. So that right. was my first thought of like, you know, I've put all this effort in, like, I need to go try to be a lawyer, and then I can always do something else. Right. And I think once you're in that and everybody's doing sort of similar things and targeting similar places, it's easy also to sort of um, get caught up in kind of what what it looks like it makes sense to do. Yeah. And, and I think I, you know, when I accepted it, really, I... I just, I was a person who wanted to make an impact in the world and make people's lives better. And I wasn't sure how, you know, there are parts of law that correlate with that, but I I just couldn't find alignment personally with it. And yeah. um, my first summer I had an internship and it, it was back home in Mississippi. And, you know, I was lucky because a lot of first years don't get internships and I got really practical I mean, they handed me summary judgment briefs to write, you know, I was doing real legal work. And so that's when it clicked for me. I was like, oh, I get it. This is kind of a game. I get to use my brain in the law, which was very appealing to me, the logic and the rhetoric, right. et cetera. And then, you know what? I can do whatever I want in my free time to save the world. Like I can yeah. volunteer, I can go make... and. I, I, I'm not saying that's right, but that I remember having that distinct moment like, hey, I really enjoy this work. Um, and so I will still find a way to make impact, even if it's not through my career. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think there's anything right or wrong about any right. It's like if that works, right. that works. Um, so what kind of practice did you get into once you were done with law school? I, I became a litigator, which was my plan. And as I said, I'd always done public speaking. I wanted to be a journalist, you know, or a broadcaster. So I, I really wanted probably more of a vocal career than a than a writing career. Um, mm -hmm. And I think, as we all know, most litigators are just uh, glorified writers today. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. People will go five years and not set foot in a in a courtroom. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I'm 22 and I got wrapped up. I went to work at the biggest law firm in Atlanta. I landed a job on the most prestigious litigation team, which everyone wanted to be on. And, you know, then I get there and find out that our Fortune 500 clients do not go to court. So I'm like, right. great. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So how did you, you know, discovering that it wasn't quite what you thought it was going to be, what was your overall experience there? Well, at first it was just fine. And again, you know, everyone has different experiences, but because I went into a large law firm, I moved to a new city. I moved to Atlanta. There were 50 of us in our entry class. So, I mean, 
your your fellow lawyers became your life. Like we were working around the clock. We had our own language. I remember when other friends of mine would join us for dinner, like I felt kind of bad, like they were left out, right? It's (laughs) almost like you have your little club. Um, You know, I mean, I remember grabbing sushi on my way home at nine o'clock at night. I knew all the janitors by name because I was there all day Saturday. So I I don't think you have a lot of time to think, to be honest, when you're a newbie lawyer, you're just trying to like get through it and do things. Um, I I do remember my first year, my mom driving up to have Easter with me because I couldn't make it home. And I remember crying because I couldn't finish my work to go home and see my mom who'd come to visit me. Right. Um, And, and there's not, you know, back then there weren't many times I broke down crying, but I mean, it just kind of hit me. So I think there were like times that you had glimpses like that, like, hey, this kind of maybe isn't normal or how the rest of the world operates or or how I want to operate. Um, But again, you know, I was working for a prestigious firm. We got the Braves ticket. I got to meet two former presidents. Like as a 22 year old, the whole situation is pretty cool, to be honest, at that point in time. Right. Yeah. I mean, today at 47, I could care less about this stuff. Right. I can buy my own Astros tickets. But um, back then you kind of get caught up and it it was definitely a boys club. um, And you know, that's, and I mentioned that because I know you and I chatted about feminine versus masculine energy. Um, And, you know, I'm 47, I'm a Gen Xer and really our, our generation, you know, it was like, oh, well, you're successful if you're one of the boys. So I thought it was cool that all the male lawyers, like, let me tag along with them to go out, right? Like, I thought I was winning. Yeah. And then, you know, much later when I was like going through my divorce and some other things, I rediscovered my female friendships and how beautiful that is. And I didn't realize what I was missing out on. So um, I I can't say that I didn't enjoy my career. I love the mental part of it. I love the work. You know, I I mean, at 22, it was fun kind of working all the time and having your friends work all the time. We got paid well. So when we went out to eat, we ate well, (laughs) you know, just kind of caught up into the whole culture. Um, But I do remember when I started, maybe the facade started to crumble for me um, because I did a lot of the briefing on cases. I got really good at writing certain types of briefs, so they would bring me in. Um, I actually became a RICO expert, and so all the RICO class actions, like I would come Mm -hmm. in um, and uh, handle those. And then one of my, it happened twice that uh, friends of mine were like, I'm really behind on my document review. Can you help me? And when I saw the facts of what our clients were doing, it devastated me and they weren't doing anything wrong. It just wasn't actions that I was ethically aligned with. And obviously for confidentiality, unfortunately I can't go much more into that. Um, but again, that was the second time I remember crying about work. I just went home and I called my mom and I was like, I don't think I can do this anymore. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and so, you know, at the same time, the lawyer who's head of litigation, when I emailed him at three in the morning, he responded back and I was like, really, is that what I'm aspiring to be at 40 something years old? <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> like it's one thing at 22, 20 in your sort of twenties, it's a very different thing you know, later in life to look down and go, is this the same setup I want for that chapter? Yeah, totally. So, you know, I think life happens as it's supposed to. I'm, I'm like a big person of faith over fear. 
Um, so like kind of the walls were crumbling there, like, you know, my ideological view of what I did. Um, and then secondarily, I was engaged to an Italian and we were getting married and trying to get him a green card, which was an interesting process mm. while I'm, yeah. you know, having all this work. Um, and so kind of worlds collided and I just thought, okay, well, I'm going to leave this firm and go to a smaller firm where maybe I could litigate, do like work I feel more aligned with, mm -hmm. um, and just, you know, try out a different culture. And so I, I literally quit one job on a Friday, no, quit one job on a Thursday, got married on Friday and started my new job on Monday. So again, oh, wow. it's, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's insane. And we moved apartments like the week before or after. So it's insane to think the things we did when we were I know. You know, 27 years old. Yeah, yeah. So, and did the smaller firm environment sort of solve your problems in terms of, I, you know, yeah. Yes and no. I think it's my nature. Like I was still there at three in the morning. I remember my now ex-husband sleeping on the floor of my office because he didn't want me to be up there by myself oh, you know, in downtown Atlanta past midnight. Um, so, you know, I, I don't know how much of that I can blame on the law firm versus my now recovered perfectionism because uh, in the law there is no perfect I mean you know the reading never ends the cases never end like you never have a solid answer right right but there is while that is totally true there is also kind of this expectation of perfection I find yeah. that to be very you know in other industries whether it's you know medicine aside um you know you look at businesses and, and, you know, science and, you know, you have hypotheses and you try and sometimes you're right and sometimes you're wrong and you can, you know, there's a, a culture of learning. And I think that that is not, what is that's not the message I received. I don't think it's the message a lot of people receive. It's like, this better be perfect. There better not be a letter out of place or else yes. you have failed. I, I used to joke that if I yeah. missed a period in a 40 page brief, I'd be fired. <laughs> right. And that's kind of the vibe. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's not, yes, we bring that our perfectionism, but it's also been so ingrained in us from the process of you know, law school and, and working at these places that, that really there is no margin for, for error. And that is an untenable expectation. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. But um, to go back to your question, the yeah. second firm didn't get a <laughs> really chance to solve things. I really enjoyed my time there. They were great. But um, what happened is immigration reared its ugly head. Mm -hmm. And even though my my now ex and I got married, uh, in the green card process, there's a period where you're not allowed to leave the country. So mm -hmm. we were at that period where... Um, you know, and they couldn't tell you it could be three months, five months, a year until you got approved to be able to leave the country and come back. And simultaneously, my ex-husband's grandfather, who was the closest person in the world to him, went into the hospital and it was pretty evident that he wasn't coming out. Yeah. So um, I just remember being in the lawyer's office when we heard this news about him not being able to leave. And I just saw him kind of crumple. And I remember looking at him and saying, well, I guess we're moving to Italy. Um, and that's how that decision was made. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes life just intercedes. <laughs> 
Absolutely. Absolutely. So, yeah. So we, uh, you know, that's a whole nother story. I, I told him to get, he had to leave immediately because, you know, if he wasn't sticking it out and I stuck around for a month to be responsible, wrap up my work, sell our right. stuff, everything, which is a newlywed was an extremely painful thing to be separated in different countries. But, you know, right. other people have had to deal with the same. Um, so in the meantime, he's trying to set up our new life in Milan and, you know, I get to Milan and <laughs> my U.S. law degree doesn't matter in Europe. They don't right. accept it. So I can't practice law. And then I was applying to law firms to be the equivalent of a legal assistant or a paralegal or a translator. And I kept being told that I was overqualified for those positions because right. of my degree. So. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know if you're familiar, but it really is a tough situation when you move to another country and trying to deal with getting appropriate work. Um, I mean, especially especially Italy. I, I was I ran international programs at a law school, so I had a lot of interaction with foreign legal institutions <laughs> and the level of bureaucracy is breathtaking. <laughs> no, it's absolutely insane. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I ended up teaching English to attorneys, executives, um, and, you know, just just professionals, which was uh, interesting because I'd never done that in my life. Um, yeah. And actually, when I was in undergrad, I wanted to become an English teacher. And then my parents were like, well, you can go to a cheaper school if you want to be an right, English teacher. Right, right, right. So, so again, it was kind of funny how life comes full circle. Um, and so, you know, I found joy in that. I obviously didn't pay very well. I went from making six figures to making basically nothing, which right. is like a really hard thing. Um, for a driven per right. person. Right. I'm curious what that, what was your thought process then in terms of like, you know, was it like long-term going like, what am I doing with my time? How did I leave this prestigious job? And, you know, obviously there was a countervailing reason, but I'm just curious mm -hmm. how that weighed on you. No, it was really challenging. And, you know, the other thing was I wasn't yet fluent in Italian. And so for someone who communication um, had been so important to my entire life, um, to find myself in this position where I never felt I could articulate or communicate correctly, mm. that was probably the most challenging part for me. Um and so the nice thing about teaching English was it kind of fixed that part. Like when I saw improvements in my, you know, in my students, yeah. um, I could hang my hat on that. But, you know, we do what we do, especially I was like 27, 28 at the age. And, you know, one feminine trait is adaptability. So mm -hmm. I like to joke that it can either be our kryptonite or it can be our superpower, right? So yeah. sometimes we adapt too much for others and we have to learn. Um but in this case, you know, it was a superpower and I kind of redirected that energy. Um, I learned how to cook Italian food. You know, we have a tiny apartment. We're in Italy. So keeping that organized, um, I just kind of, I guess I redirected that perfectionism into other things. And I'll never forget one night we had guests over and some of the men were like, do you eat like this every night? And my husband was like, yes. And they were like, oh my gosh, I need to go to the U.S. and find a wife. Why <laughs> like, like, will they moment. be disappointed like, if they found me? <laughs> I know. <laughs> well, 
It's so funny. That's my proud moment. And when I tell that joke today, everyone who knows me is like, I just can't imagine that being you. So, you know, we, right. we just kind of adapt and make the most of our situation. Yeah. Yeah. So how long was that phase for you? A year and a half the first time, um, again, this could be a whole nother podcast, but yeah. my ex-husband had an addiction problem that I didn't know about till after we were married because oh. when he lived in the U.S. with me, he had stopped everything. Um, so I basically, the third go round on rehab, I just physically, mentally, and emotionally couldn't do it. I mean, I had pretty much stopped my life to support him, you know? Yeah, yeah. So it was a year and a half. Then we moved back to the States for a year where I practiced on New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. That was a very interesting experience, by the way. Wow. Um, How, I'm just curious and because I, yeah. I asked this because I think people are like, oh, if you walk away for a half second, you'll never be able to break back in. So I just want to yeah. highlight that you left the country for a while and came back and found a job and practicing law. <laughs> yeah, I did. And you know, I, part of it was New Orleans right after Katrina. I mean, I yeah. had three jobs within a week, right? Yeah. They were desperate for attorneys. Um, there was tons of litigation going on about the hurricane. Mm -hmm. And um, so I did have to take a step down and pay, you know, again, this is yeah. like 2003. When I started working, I started at 100,000 and, you know, had escalated a little like as a new attorney. So when I came back, I took a job at like 85,000. So, you know, um, probably about 80% of what I'd been making before, but yeah. I just kind of, you know, I, I figured, okay, I'm going to have to do this and I'm going to have to prove myself. And by the end of the first year, they increased me to my previous salary and gave me a huge bonus. So I think if you find the right fit, um, yeah. you know, a firm that really wants what you have to offer and you show up, um, and, and do the work and are a nice person, then you're going to be fine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I, and maybe it's not the exact job that you left that you end up no. going back to, but I think people get really paralyzed by this idea that like, it's this permanent move if they try something else. Um, and it doesn't always have to be, or at least yeah. you can know in the back of your mind that that's an option. If that makes making a change feel more possible. <laughs> yeah. And um, I, I, I don't mean this to denigrate any lawyers listening, but Megan, I have a question for you. Yeah. I always think now that, I mean, I, I, I sold my two financial companies earlier this year and now I have an, a, a new startup coaching like you. And yeah. so I forgot how hard it is to start up a new business, right? Mm, because I, yeah. I had my business for 15 years and I was kind of younger and dumber when I started it. So uh, let's say naive. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So it didn't seem as hard, but a lot of times I'm like, gosh, being a litigator would be so easy when I look back <laughs> because it's so single focused. Whereas That's true. That's true. So many hats and what we do. You know, I, it's, I was just speaking with someone, another episode I was recording today, just talking about that you, you choose your discomfort, you know, yes. nothing is, is going to be perfect all of the time. And what you choose and what discomfort makes sense may change depending on what chapter of life you're in. And that's okay. Yeah. And I also really encourage, you know, this wasn't a big deal when I was younger, but knowing yourself, like, I mean, I've taken every assessment out there, like the Colby assessment, oh, yeah. the disc, my favorite is the print. 
I, I did unique ability with strategic coach where we dissected who I am. And in my own coaching, one of my main tenets is for my, um, I coach female entrepreneurs is their personal core values, not their business. Yes. Um, because, <laughs> you know, it's important to know who we are and make sure our cup is full because, you know, women are the foundation of their families. If they own a business, they're the foundation of that. They're the foundation of most communities. And, you know, it, it became very unpopular to take care of yourself for a long time. And self-sacrifice was the rage. But I always like to say if the foundation is cracked, the rest is not going to make it. So yeah. as women, we're such, you know, givers. And the feminine nature is to receive. So it's so interesting how we found ourselves in this position in society. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, I really agree about your, you can't really separate your, your sort of career and business decisions from who you are as a person, right? I always say, yeah. I'm kind of an accidental entrepreneur. There are parts <laughs> of it that I find extremely uncomfortable, but right. my values of, freedom and growth just and you know i just couldn't find a way to make them fit into a traditional job at least at this stage of my life right and so yeah. it, being clear on what those are i couldn't agree more is like so important for for every time you're asking yourself okay what's the next step and it's um, funny you say that because when i look back like my colby for anyone who knows it is a three three nine four so i'm like you know short on due diligence and fact finding long on quick start which means i yeah. just want to come up with ideas all day which is why yeah. i'm like a born entrepreneur right but i'm like gosh how was i a litigator and i read like 600 pages a day right like when i think back to like right. what i had chosen as my career and how it was not at all suited for where my personal superpowers lie right um, it's kind of crazy but you know we don't know when we're young and that's why you know if anyone's listening and they're younger gosh go discover yourself as quickly as you can yeah i listen i i'm totally into all of the assessments too, because they can be very eye-opening. I don't know if you know the strengths finder. Yes. One of the category, there are four categories. The one that I have like no strengths in is executing, <laughs> just like getting things done, <laughs> attention to detail. And the problem is like, because we're all smart and capable and adaptable, we, we actually are excelling in these things. And that's not a good um, metric of whether it's actually our superpower. It's, you could be very... Yep successful and excellent the whole zone of excellence versus zone of genius where right. you you could that's why you get people get stuck in that zone of excellence because all of the outside measures are telling you you're succeeding but there is just this other level where it could just be so much more pleasant <laughs> well yeah and when you're stuck in the zone of excellence you're slowly draining your lifeblood yes. right very so, very true yeah um I think that's why people hit burnout. And, you know, I also think for women, um, they hit burnout because they, similar to what we're talking about, you know, the external factors of success are masculine traits, right? Mm -hmm. So right. to be successful as a woman for so long, we had to operate in our masculine energy. And we as women are very adaptable. We can go back and forth between feminine and masculine energy, and we can learn to be aware of it and transition, et cetera. So that's what I work with a lot of my clients about. But like, if you don't know that and you think you're just doing what you should do to get the job done um, and you're acting and you're masculine all the time, you're draining that battery as well. Yeah, absolutely. So 
you know, we're sort of foreshadowing, but I'd love, so you, let's, I just want to get back to, you left the practice of law, you're a coach now, but there's a middle piece there, (laughs) what sounds like a few businesses and quite a few years. So what caused you to make that jump out, out of the law and the practice of law that second time? Yeah. So when I finally um, left my husband and he was still in Italy, you know, I moved back. I literally had nothing. I couldn't have a career for five years. Right. I'd been stimmied through all this, except for that one year in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was visiting my parents and I just realized physically, emotionally and mentally I was done. I could not get back on the plane to go home. Um And that's kind of how my marriage started ending, not really by choice, but because I had no other choice. Yeah. Um, Just, you know, dealing with the addiction over the years. And so, uh, again, here I find myself, you know, I I think I was like 33 at the time. I don't know, something like that. The super achiever who, you know, always done everything, even in Italy, had found ways to super achieve as a housewife. Yeah. Um, And then I'm suddenly back in my parents' house going, crap, what's next? Right. So I, I literally would just go for walks every day. I was just like, um, you know, I'm just going to go walk. And I would like go for hours long walk. And, you know, I was probably lost, but I was kind of searching for what's next. And during this time I had a friend selling Arbonne. I don't know if you're familiar, Mm -hmm. but you know, it's skincare and makeup. And I was like, Oh, let me do this. Of course, I didn't make any money because I had too much fun having the parties and buying the products, but um, <laughs> as most people do. Yeah. But it introduced me back to my feminine friendships, right? Mm. Because I was having parties with women about makeup. I mean, this had been so opposite of my right. legal career, my life in Italy, etc. Um, and I just loved it. Like, I love being around people. I loved, you know, having these chats. I love trying to help people through that. Um, so basically I did that and I walked and that was all I did, um, for, for a bit. And then I just remember looking up one day at the sky and saying, all right, God, I'm ready. Just send it to me. Yeah. Um, cause I guess I just needed that time to heal. And, you know, within a week I got a job, my brother decided to go back to college. So I took over his mortgage and moved into his house. Um, and I met someone and I wasn't ready for a relationship, but I think sometimes people come along to push you. So I wouldn't Mm. go back to my ex-husband, right? Because, um, so just all these signs showed up that it was time to move on with life. Um, and so interestingly, the job I got was my sister was a legal recruiter in New Orleans. I'm in Biloxi, Mississippi at the time where I grew up, which I left at 18 and never thought I'd be back there. So, um, So my sister's like, hey, I have this attorney with a federal court case and, you know, over there it's admiralty law and he needs a second chair. Do you want to do it? I was like, yeah, like, sure. I knew nothing about admiralty law, but I knew about litigating and writing briefs. So I was like, yeah, because I knew I needed something to do. Um, so it was great. I'm like freelancing law, making 10,000 a month. Cause you know, I left my marriage broke as well because of my husband's addiction problem. So mm-hmm. I'm like, this is awesome. I'm just putting money in the bank. I'm getting to go to court finally. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, advise him. Um, And so I actually loved it. I loved Admiralty Law. I love being on the water. So I was like, maybe this is my next move, right? Because I need to live on a port to do Admiralty Law. Yeah. Um, 
And so what happened was he just, you know, he was a brilliant lawyer, had just gone out on his own to run his practice. And I think like so many professionals, not just lawyers, they don't know how to run a business. They're very good at what they do but they don't know how to run a practice or a business. Right. And so he just kept getting slower and slower and paying me. And then he was like, Hey, I, you know, I want to open an office there. You could be managing partner. And I was like, gosh, I'm going to go like hunt people down to pay us money. That doesn't sound very appealing to me, uh, you know, as I'm waiting for him to pay me. Right. And I was like, yeah, I don't know. So at the same time, my dad and I were very close and his, um, his executive assistant retired from his financial practice. And so he was looking for someone new and I was like, oh, I'll come to your dinner seminar and greet people and seat them. Like, I just thought it'd be fun to like see my dad in action. Right. Right. Um, So during the day I'm going to court at night, I'm doing this with my dad. And then he was like, hey, can you call everyone and schedule appointments? And I was like, sure. (laughs) Because, you know, here I am. I love talking to people. Yeah. Um, And then he was like, hey, I want to thank you. Come on this trip with me. It was to West Palm Beach. Our case had just settled. I'm like, cool. And, you know, I get there and it rained the whole week. So like I said, if you're paying attention, like God is pushing you in the direction, right? Or whatever higher power you believe in. So I went to the meetings with my dad and I was like, wow, I didn't realize this is what you do. Um, Because being a retirement planner, you know, you're planning this ideal retirement and you're getting to listen to people's hopes and dreams and obviously holding their hand through it. Whereas a litigator, I was always inheriting problems, messed up contracts, et cetera. Um, So I was like, gosh, this sounds awesome. Like maybe I'll do this with you, dad. Um, yeah. And so that's how I became a financial advisor in July of 2008 of all times. Oh, wow. Yeah. Was there any part of you that was like worried about walking away from practice or like felt like, you know, you were quote unquote wasting your degree? Um, possibly, you know, to be fair, my life had fallen apart. So at that point, everything was new and fresh. And, Mm. and, um, another thing I had to overcome in my life is getting divorced, even though, you know, I was in a bad situation. I really felt like I had failed at the most important thing, like marriage and starting a family. So for me, it became, um, so much more important to succeed at whatever I did. So, I think succeeding and helping people became more important than how I did that. Mm. Um, And again, fast forward a few years later, I obviously had to heal from that. Like I had to heal from my perfectionism, right? Because I mean, it's, it's okay to fail. It's okay to be, find yourself in these terrible situations. We're human beings. So, so at the time, I mean, I'll tell you what I missed. I missed my friends that were lawyers because, you know, we just, most people don't like lawyers. I mean, that's the big joke, right? <laughs> yeah. like, I mean, I loved my lawyer friends. I loved our like witty conversations. I loved the whole environment, you know, in New Orleans, my firm was great. Like still one of my best friends to this day. I practice law with there. Yeah. Um, So like kind of leaving that club for lack of a better term was probably the most difficult part. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I I get that. I mean, even flashback to, you were saying the first, you know, right out of law school, your job, you know, I think these relationships are, are some of the 
biggest benefits. No, it's sort of forged under, I always think it's kind of like being hazed. You're like, we're all being tortured the same way. It's <laughs> <so> trauma bonding. <laughs> so not sure, not sure that's the best thing, but it does certainly cause you to have very close friendships. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like your friends kind of become your life. Yeah. Um, so that's yeah. really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So but you were I, ready I started... for a reinvention, it sounds like. Yeah. And so I was my dad's intern for a year and a half. And um, it was interesting because he had, he was kind of slowing down in his career then. And, you know, here I come in this ball of energy with nothing else to do. And I'm like, nope, we're marketing more. We're marketing more. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, he had a marketing tool that worked, his dinner seminars. So I just like scheduled them every freaking month, whereas my dad would probably do one a quarter, right? right. Like, nope, this is working. Uh, we have this machine going. Let's just do it. And he would literally be like, you scheduled us more seminars. And I was like, yes, I already ordered the invitation. We already paid for it. We're doing it. Um <laughs> So it kind of pushed him forward in his career and he ended up, you know, working until this year. Um, so that was great. But, you know, unknowingly, I mean, honestly, Megan, like I said, I left my, my, my marriage broke. So probably part of it was being, I was getting 10% of our revenue. I didn't have mm -hmm. a salary. So I was like, okay, we got to make some money. Yeah. Well, he should understand the incentive system he set up there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So funny that my two siblings also joined later and they got salaries, but that's a whole nother conversation. Yeah. So um, yeah, it was an interesting incentive situation. And you know, it's, it's interesting because I think that's why my, my new business starting it up is challenging because I sold a business and I have money and I don't have that hunger and necessity. Mm. I have this drive to serve people. And I do think that necessity is important to building a business. That's interesting because I think that the fear <laughs> is paralyzing to some people, but it can also be fuel. So it's just an example of like how you look at something, right? Like you could look at the yeah. same set of facts as a positive or a negative. Yep, true. And, you know, a lot of, uh, I, I'm sure you do this in your work, a lot of what we do is helping our clients push through that fear. Um, yeah. Because absolutely. fear is not real. We make it up, right? As human and we're beings, such good storytellers around it. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> super creative. <laughs> yeah. So we, we have to change that story. And, you know, one thing I always told my team on my financial practice, and then also now my clients is everything's just a problem to be solved, right? If you yeah. can get the emotion out of it. And, and that's why it, if you are subject to fear, I think it's so important to understand how you get it out of your body. Do you go for a run? Do you go for a walk? Do you take a hot bath? Like, mm -hmm. because it does store nervous energy in your body that you have to process. And then how do you calm your mind? Do you yeah. meditate? Do you read a book? Do you spend time with family? And, and I think, you know, for anyone in life, that's two critical skills, right? Like, how do I calm totally. my nervous system and how do I calm my mind? And it's, it's a different for everyone. And I think being an entrepreneur, these are two critical skills because the entrepreneurial roller coaster is real. Yeah. Yeah, it is. <laughs> and I never try and like, you know, hide the ball. You know, this is, yeah. it's a challenging path to take. I find it very rewarding, but you know, it, part of that is it's not optional whether you learn these tools or not, but it's also so expanding because you get to, you know, it's like removing barriers of all, all these mm -hmm. fears that we just 
you know, so many people I talk to, it's like, it's like, it's like you get to put different colored glasses on and see things in a different way. Um, yeah. Removing those. Well, but I want to be sure. For, oh, no, that's okay. Culture for so long conditioned us to be in fear and scarcity, right? So right. Right. I, I think it's also a part of like evolution of consciousness of the world period that we have to learn how to overcome that. Yeah, totally agree. So I want to make sure we get into a little bit of the meat of like, you know, you, you ran the financial services for 15 years. Is that what you said? Yes. And then you're now a coach. So tell us about how you decided to transition to that and, and sort of exactly what you help people with. Oh, thanks. Um, so I think about 2017, I want to say I started getting visions of making impact in a different way. Um, you know, and, as I mentioned to you, like I learned early in life with like not being able to get on the plane to go home to my husband that, you know, your destiny, your intuition, God, whatever you want to call it, whispers to you, like points and shows you the direction. And when you refuse to listen, uh, I like to say we get hit upside the head with the t- oh, two by yes. four, right? Totally. <laughs> so, you know, by, by that time of life, I understood this concept. Um, And so like 2017, I first had this vision and my vision was of speaking on stage at Madison Square Garden, but it wasn't about me. So I never saw myself. What I saw was the crowd because I went there to see Andrea Bocelli in concert. Like Mm -hmm. I took my mom and I just looked around and I thought, oh my gosh, could you imagine if you impacted this many people's lives, right? Like how awesome. Like, and so, you know, it's for people that are successful at it, being on stage is not about them. It's about the difference they make to the people in front of them. So like I saw that and fast forward to 2019, I was in strategic coach, um, which I don't know if you're familiar with. And we did this life extender exercise, which is amazing. I highly recommend get that book if you haven't done it because it changed your concept and anxiety about time. Like it disappears it. And so it's like, okay, well, if you're going to live this much longer, what are you going to do at that time? And on my list popped up Madison Square Garden again. Yeah. And so I'm like, gosh, this keeps coming back. And then, um, but by then it had evolved for me just seeing like this love fest in the audience, like everybody there making the impact on each other. And so (laughs) then fast forward to 2020, um, April 2020, you know what we are all doing. We were (laughs) locked down, right? And as a business owner, it was a very scary, it was very difficult. Like we didn't know what to do for the best interests of our clients, our employees, not to mention your family. Like, I mean, no one had an easy time at that time, but it was April 2020. I'm a financial advisor on top of being a business owner and the economy's in the toilet, right? Right. So I'm putting out scarcity and fear 24-7 between my team and my clients. And and I had spent my career building up abundance mentality. That was my most favorite part of being a financial advisor. And I just saw people's abundance mentality wiped out in 2020. And honestly, I was like, gosh, I got to rebuild this. Like, you know, it, it almost seemed like this mountain. And, um, I was still in my rescue mode where I thought I had to save everyone. Right. Which I have since healed from as well. And I was like, what do I do? And I was reading a book. It's April, 2020, Coot Blackstone, you are the one. And the first chapter talks about how no one's coming to save you. It's up to you. Yeah. (laughs) Which now I believe, you know, with faith, you can be saved, but you still have to take the action. 
And he talks about how growing up in Ghana, he moved to London. And what he wanted to do was move to the U.S. and speak at Madison Square Garden. Oh, whoa. Like, I, yeah, the, signs, signs. <laughs> yeah, I looked up at this guy. I go, really? You want me to do this right now? Like, really? Yeah. Um, but because I'd learned that lesson, I knew that was my third time and I'd better figure it out quickly. So while still running my financial planning firm, you know, keeping keeping my team afloat, keeping my clients afloat, keeping the business afloat, like my side gig was like, OK, well, what am I going to do? Because there are no speaking gigs now. And I keep seeing myself on stage. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and like, you know, I know I need, I'm being called to make impact in a different way, but what does it look like? And so I did what I had never done before because I always just gave value, value, value to people. I still believe in this mm -hmm. so that then when I asked a favor, I, you know, I do it because I'm a giving person, but then when you ask a favor, it's no big deal, right? Because yeah. you've deposited so much into the relationship. Um, and so I just was like, you know what, I'm just going to start calling people and asking for help, which was a very new concept yeah. for me because I'm very self-directed. Um, and I started getting on the phone with other or on Zooms uh, yeah. with other female entrepreneurs. And I just saw this shift happening. So first of all, I saw like the scarcity come in and the abundance mentality go out. Mm -hmm. Um and then second, I saw these female entrepreneurs and women in general saying, gosh, I've been living life a certain way. It all, the rug just got pulled out from under me. And yeah. do I want to go back to the same way I was living it before? Right. Right. Yeah. Um, and you know how many entrepreneurs were born out of 2020. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. <laughs> deciding, hey, I don't want to go back to the office. Let me be what I like being with my family. One of my clients, I love her to death. She's like, I realized I really loved my husband during COVID. <laughs> I wanted to spend more yeah, time with figure. Him. Yeah, it was like a veil was lifted of like, oh, we've all been just marching to this beat. And all of a sudden we saw that like things could be fundamentally different. And I think it really shifted yeah. people's thoughts. Yeah. And I started seeing all these women want to venture into, you know, side hustles, business, et cetera. And I'd been doing it at that point for 13, 12 years. And, you know, I knew the road was challenging. Yeah. Um, and so I was like, well, let me figure out how I can help. So, um, you know, it took until 2023. Well, really, I was doing it part time up until March of this year. And then mm -hmm. I went full time and, and the sale of my other business was finalized, which, you know, that could be a whole nother call. But going yeah. through selling a business, especially when you have clients that depend on you, yeah. um, it's very lonely and emotional, it, even though, you know, it's exciting. Um, it, it's interesting. So yeah, I think I that's imagine. a part of entrepreneurship not often spoken about. And yeah. it's 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 a big deal. Yeah, yeah. And so now, like specifically, you know, you have, you know, the way you're described is you're helping sort of Gen X women tap into sort of their feminine side. And what does that yeah. really mean to you? So, you know, there are masculine and feminine energies and every human on earth has both, right? Mm -hmm. um, so men tend to be born fixed and this comes... Um, uh, from research that other people have done, not me, mm -hmm. <laughs> but basically, you know, if a man's born 80% masculine, 20% feminine, this like more your alpha male, right? Or they could be born 60, 40, et cetera. Whereas we women are more on a sliding scale between femininity and masculinity. Mm -hmm. Um, 
but you know, especially when you're in male dominated industries like finance and law, you have to put on your masculine hat. And, um, I kind of say your GSD energy, which is get S done, um, is very masculine and grind and hustle has become so popular in the last few years. And, you know, this is all masculine energy. Um, and so I think because we women didn't have anything in our lifetime mirrored differently for us that we didn't understand there was a different way. So, you know, we talked about adaptability as a feminine trait, um, multitasking, which people say doesn't exist, but it goes back to cave days when we were the gatherers, right? And we had to know which berries were in which trees and when they'd be ripe and where the kids were and who was back. You know, I mean, women have to understand everything to take care of the family. And it's just baked into our DNA, even for someone like me who doesn't have kids. Um, And so understanding that about yourself, and it can be a superpower, but it can also drain you. So you have to understand how to handle it. Mm. And what's interesting to me is receiving as a feminine trait and giving as masculine, right? But we women have all become ultimate givers. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I I see this, everything sort of on a spectrum in the sense of like, you know, even independent from gender, to me, these are traits that, that we yep. all have. And it's, it's asking yourself, have you over, you know, overdeveloped one side of these, these um, traits and, and sort of neglected your other side. And I think just societally, we have generally neglected some of these more feminine traits too. Yeah. Because we want to be balanced. Yeah. Um and, and as women, really, the key is balance between the two. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, a great, a great example is um, I, I know I had a lot of clients who are like, oh, my gosh, I'm working at home. My kids and my husband are the other side of that door. I'm like jamming it out all day. And then I walk out there and I'm carrying the energy from the day with me. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, and, and, you know, because you used to have the drive home from the office to transition out of that or, mm-hmm. you know, you'd go somewhere or meet friends or something. And so, you know, I, I would literally design with my clients. Oh, OK. I see a balcony right there. Can you go sit on the balcony for five to ten minutes, like in between work and going out into the world right. of your family? Right? right. Can you light a candle? Can you read a poem? Like I had one client who loved yoga, so she'd do some yoga poses. But, right. you know, you, you really want to figure out what softens you and takes you down a notch, not, you know, um, I have a friend who's like, we don't want to be the light pink version of femininity. We want to be fuchsia. So whatever your choice <laughs> is, right? But, right, right. Yeah. And it's the idea of like, you know, you said before, like, like hustle, doing, 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 just yeah. finding some space to be. Exactly. So, yeah. you know, I'm a certified high performance coach as well. And research shows the highest performers take a break every 52 minutes, right? So. Right. Why do you have an hour long meeting? Make it a 50 minute meeting because right. guess what? You're going to get the same amount done and then you have 10 minutes to be human. And right. then right. same thing, have a 25 minute meeting instead of a 30 minute meeting. So a lot of these things are really just small tweaks that we can make. Um, but you know, you can feel yourself when you really settle back into your body and you can feel your feet on the ground, you're grounded, you're in your body. Yeah. Um, because how many days are you working, 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 and you're like, oh my gosh, it's five o'clock already? Like you're not fully present. Right, right, yeah. And I, I do think this is, you know, I'm, I'm 
encouraged. I think these are conversations that more people are having and particularly, you know, traditionally successful, high achieving women are, are having as well, just about, you know, the balance and the fact that, you know, we're allowed to be human and take a breath and take care of ourselves. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And one thing I like to say is like, you know, self-care doesn't have to be a day at the spa because most of us don't have time for that. Right. Like what's, what's a little bit of like self-love you can give yourself every single day. Like those little drops in the bucket add up. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's really interesting. Uh, you know, having just heard your whole um, career trajectory, it's also like what I hear in there is there's such a core of of service, right? Like that's sort of yeah. what you were drawn to. And in each place, that was kind of top of mind. I just think it's so, um, you know, sometimes our career paths don't make sense, you know, linearly, like as they're happening. But then in retrospect, you look back and you're like, Oh, there was a there was a thread through everything. Like I this wasn't just random. Like this was my path and there's a reason and there's a there is something at, you know, which may not be immediately obvious, but that's sort of mm-hmm. pulling me forward in the work I'm supposed to do. Well, and I agree and I think when you find yourselves in those moments of questioning, look for the positive. I mean, you know, when I was teaching English in Italy, yeah. I had no idea how I was developing my listening skills, um, mm-hmm. which incredibly served me as a financial advisor and especially is serving me as a coach today. So, yeah. Um, yeah, you know, I, I, I don't know that I had those skills prior to being an English teacher. Yeah. Yeah. Just sort of trusting that, you know, that you're open and following, you know, not just holding tight to a path because you think that's what you should do. Like, even if you don't fully understand it, seeing the gifts and in, in all of these experiences and trusting that if you're intentional, I think that's it. It's like being intentional yeah. about it. Um, but so I don't want to keep you too late, but could you let us know if someone's sort of intrigued to hear more about you or get in touch where someone could find you? Yeah, I'd love that. So I do one-to-one coaching, small group coaching. Um, and also I have a mastermind, which is like a bundle of one-to-one coaching, gr- small group, and we do a retreat every quarter. Um, and so we, um, I mainly serve female entrepreneurs or high performing women. Um, one of my pet projects is to do high performance coaching with couples, because I think when you grow together, that's, you know, incredibly important. Um, but they can find me at our website, Fix and Gathering or on, uh, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn under Vix and Gathering. All right. Well, thank you so much, April, for taking the time to have this chat. I feel like we could talk for another hour, but I don't respect <laughs> I everybody's time. Um, but it was really, it was lovely having you on. Yes, it was. Oh, and one more thing. Sorry, yeah. Megan. Hey. If anyone is interested in chatting more, they can um, set up a 45-minute alignment call so we can just chat and see what makes sense. All right, great. Thanks again. Thanks again.